associate pastor here at the church. Honored that you would gather with us this morning and, and be with us in this Advent season here at the church. You actually came at a good time because we've missed the last couple of weeks of, of really being in the Christmas season. So we're starting this week with our Advent sermon series. Hopefully when you walked in, you got one of these devotionals. I can go ahead and follow along the weeks that we are doing this week. Week one is Mary's song. So make sure you grab one of these if you don't have them on your way out. I um, want to go ahead as well and just go ahead and talk about our theme. Our theme is good news that leads to great joy. That's what we're talking about today. And, and if you'll notice this throughout history, that there tends to be this pattern that, that good news, if not always, it usually leads to people rejoicing. It usually leads to people celebrating. Uh, if I was to chat with you and I was to say, hey, let me give you some advice on how to make a million bucks. I don't have a million bucks, but just play along with me for a second, okay? If I was to give you advice on how to go ahead and make a million dollars, work hard, be disciplined, go ahead and invest in these certain areas, that's not reason for you to celebrate and rejoice. That's good advice, but it's not good news. What is good news is if I came to you and I told you, hey, you won a million dollars. Well, that would be cause for celebration. That would be cause for rejoicing. In fact, probably once you got that money, you'd go ahead and throw a party and there would be a bunch of singing and dancing and eating and drinking and just being merry overall. We need good news, church. That, that's a, 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 you know, a theoretical example. Let me give you some real ones. Uh, it's be on the screen. May 8th, 1945. This is known as VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. And this is a picture of Piccadilly Circus in London. This is when they received the news that Nazi Germany had uh, surrendered. They had been defeated. And when they had received the news that uh, the evil enemy and tyrant of that nation of Germany has died, they went to the streets. And they went and they celebrated and they rejoiced and they sang songs. And they probably ate good food and, and had good drinks. And I'm sure probably even some people got married that day as well. They had a cause for celebration. A more recent one for us, church. 9-11, when that happened, and people were looking to see who was responsible for that, and then Osama bin Laden became the person who took responsibility for that. The, the day that he was killed, May 2nd, 2011, people took to the streets in most of our big cities, and they weren't breaking windows. Like, what a crazy thought that is, you know? They, they went to the streets, and they were celebrating, and if you even remember some of the news clips of that, they were singing, God bless America. Uh, like when we receive the news that evil has been defeated, that, that wickedness has gone away, uh, we celebrate, we rejoice. It's almost like an uncontrollable reaction that we have within us. Like it's just a, this reaction that we have to celebrate when we hear of evil being defeated. So here's my thesis for us this morning, all right? We will always live in dark times due to sin in our world. It's inescapable for where we live. We will always live in dark times. However, you can have everlasting joy today despite your circumstances of where you live and what's going on. And the reason that you can is because of the good news of Jesus' arrival into the world. It means this, all evil and suffering that we might face is ultimately coming to an end because God is bringing a greater kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. You see this in the life of Jesus. When Jesus begins his ministry, he is doing things that no kingdom has ever done or ever will do. 
He is raising the dead to life. Uh, He's making the blind be able to see. He's allowing the deaf to be able to hear. Uh, Athanasius, he's a church father from the 300s, and he wrote a book on the incarnation, and he says, when Jesus arrives, death and demons flee. That's just a way of saying that when Jesus comes, darkness dies. And so for our context today, we're gonna be in Luke chapter one, starting in verse 30. We're gonna be looking at Mary's song, like I said. But the context for which we're entering, you need to understand two things about it. Uh, The first one is this. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament is this period called the Intertestament period. It's 400 years from the last book of Malachi to the first books in the Gospels. And it's 400 years of silence. In the Old Testament, you would have a prophet, and a prophet would speak on behalf of God to God's people. And he would go ahead and receive a word from God and give it to them, and he would say, thus says the Lord, and speak on their behalf. And in that 400-year period, not a single prophet arose. In that 400-year period, nobody had heard what God was wanting to say or speak to them. And so you could imagine, right? Just, just use your imagination for a second. You could imagine, like them, they would probably be asking these questions, right? Because does God care about us? Does, does God care about us? Does he see what we're going through? Has God forgotten us? Maybe we are not worth remembering. That's one. Second point, throughout this 400 year period, Israel is in constant battle for almost 400 years. They're taken over by the Persian army. After that period, they're taken over by Greeks led by Alexander. And Israel, they'll have a little revolt in that time where they'll have about 70 to 100 years of freedom, that they are are a free nation. And then Rome, this great beast of a nation, they'll come and they'll decimate Israel. They'll take them over, they won't be free, and they'll give them a fake king in King Herod. Uh, This is what Israel is at right now when Jesus enters. This is their context. Their context is one of being a dark place, constant battle, and constant conflict. And during this conflict, right, asking the question, man, where's God? Where is he? I think about this, right? Like you and me, if we want to make this a little more personal, we get exhausted when we read in the news about things going on in Ukraine and Russia or, or Israel and Palestine, right? And we're not even there. We're not even in that nation. Uh, my son Edmund was born October 6th, and then October 7th is when the war in Israel started. And it was so overwhelming for my mind that like, I took time off social media because I couldn't handle it. And I'm so far removed from it. Uh, Imagine, church, that you and me are involved in such a deep war like that, like Israel in that time of Jesus' arrival. And we've been in war not just a couple years or a couple decades, but we've been in war for roughly 400 years. 400 years where all the generations will know is war, conflict, darkness, and despair. Right, their condition has to be one of numbness. It has to be one where they're saying, hey, we're not just losing the war, we've lost. It is, in fact, hopeless. Now, we get a taste of this, right, when we sing the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's on the back, actually, of those booklets that we're giving you guys. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, in ransom captive Israel. There, 
in need of peace, Mercy Fellowship. And we're in no different. We are also in need of peace. They are in need of good news that will lead to great joy, and we also are in need of good news that'll lead to great joy. So here's where we're at in the story. God hasn't spoken in 400 years seemingly. Uh, they've been a war-torn nation. And if we zoom in to the person of Mary, we're gonna see this. Mary, she's a, a person who lives in Nazareth. Nazareth, it's a, it's a poor rural town. Uh, if you think about Jesus' ministry, people will go ahead and ask Jesus, Jesus, where are you from? And he says, Nazareth. And then they'll go ahead and say, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? Can anything good come from Marysville, right? It's, it's kind of that same idea. Can anything come from this poor rural town? They are sitting in darkness, but a great light has come to them. And we'll go ahead and start in verse 30. Uh, Luke chapter one, verses 30 through 35. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. There's, there's two things that we see in this section that I want to point out to you. One is this, Mary's interaction with the angel, where the angel says, hey, Mary, you're going to have a son, and his name's going to be Jesus. And it's important for you and me to think about this. When Jesus is born, it's not just that there's a bunch of little boys and girls that are running around, and there's just, there's just one boy named Jesus that pops up. That's not it. Jesus translates to Joshua, and that means this, the Lord is salvation. So, so salvation is coming through Mary, being born of Mary. Second thing, though, when it talks about the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, I want you to think about this. Do not think of this uh, text here in the context of uh, something sexual, but think of it in some, as something biblical. Here's what I mean by that. It's a pagan Greek idea that gods would go ahead and they'd come down and they'd sleep with someone and then they'd go ahead and they'd have this pseudo-god-man kind of character. That's what Hercules is. Uh, that's not what the Bible is saying. What the Bible is saying is when the Holy Spirit overshadows you, it's trying to trigger in your mind to go back to the Old Testament. And when you do, you'll look there and you'll see there was a tabernacle where God would meet with his people and there would be a shadow that would, there would be a cloud that would overshadow that tabernacle as God met with them. So what's being said is this, hey, hey Mary, remember how I did something in the past with Israel? Well, I'm gonna do something again. And God himself is going to be meeting with his people and meeting with you, Mary. This is what we're getting. So here's the good news for us. He comes and he says this, God is entering into the world. God's not silent. God is, in fact, not silent as we might think he is. And saying this as well, that his kingdom is going to be established forever. There is going to be no end to it. Why is this good news? Let's talk about this. This is good news because of the context we talked about. Mary lives in a place that is war-torn. 
She's been living in a place where nations have been cycling in and out of Israel, taking it over throughout hundreds of years. And what the angel is doing is juxtaposing two things. Here's an eternal kingdom that is coming, and here's the kingdoms that fade. This is what the angel is showing Mary that's happening through Jesus' arrival. Mary, she is doing this. She is placing her hope, not in Israel being free someday, but rather she is placing her hope in being part of God's kingdom. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, I was installing some windows over at a, jo- uh, had a job in Stanwood, and it was a, a big property and, and a couple acres, and uh, went there, and just like a lot of homes, they had a flagpole in the front of their house. And on their flagpole, they had two flags. The top flag was the American flag, and the flag underneath it was the Christian flag. Now, Mercy Fellowship, how many of you know what a Christian flag is? It is, a, uh, it is a putrid, disgusting, if you have one in Jesus' name, throw it away. You don't need it, okay? But well, what you see there is, I, I believe, a kind of a window into this homeowner's heart where, where their allegiance, their savior starts with the nation and then I'll sprinkle some Jesus into it, right? I was just, uh, Ruth and I actually, last night, I thought this was so good. Uh, last night, we were watching National Lampoon's Christmas, okay? And, uh, and you have Clark Griswold. He goes ahead and he says, hey, why don't we go ahead and say grace? Actually, I'll have the 80-year-old senile woman say grace at our table. And so she goes ahead and she bows her head. She folds her hands and she says, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, Right? That's a a humorous picture, but that's kind of the picture, right? If your salvation is in the nation, your prayers are the Pledge of Allegiance. Your Bible is the Constitution. Your God is the nation. Now, let me say this, church. Let's not believe the lie that our nation somehow is going to remain supreme forever and ever, and all these other nations are going to duke it out for second and third place while we stay unmoved. Let's not fall into that lie, okay? Uh, Our hope is not in being American citizens. Our hope is being citizens of an eternal kingdom with Jesus as our king. So I I love America. Just I hope you don't hear me wrong. I'm Canadian, but I love America, okay? Just so we're clear. I, I love this nation. I'm grateful to live here. But church, my hope's not in this nation. And I hope for your sake as well, your hope's not in this nation as well. Let's not misplace our hope in something that fades. So this is the good news that comes to Mary in a war-torn, depressed state. An eternal kingdom is coming. A kingdom that can't be shaken. A kingdom that can't be destroyed. A kingdom that can't be overtaken. And this is the thing that results in her praising God in her song. So we'll go ahead and continue on. Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 50. Mary says this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary's making the point in this first section of her song here that God is her savior and that is her joy. I want you guys to notice this too. Currently, her circumstances haven't changed. 
Currently, she still lives in a very uh, rural, poor town. Currently, she's not only impoverished, but she still lives in a nation that's owned by Rome. She's not free. Her circumstances have not changed, and yet her joy is not dictated by her circumstances, by rather who her Savior is. I hope you catch this. In darkness, she's able to sing, and in poverty, she's able to recognize how rich she is in God. Uh, why? Because God's her Savior. That's why. So let me ask you this morning, Mercy Fellowship, is God your Savior? That word Savior, it means this. It means to deliver or rescue. And, and if God's not your Savior, let's ask this question. What is? Because here's the reality for every single human that exists. If you don't have God as your Savior, that doesn't get rid of the idea of having a Savior. Rather, you're going to choose something or someone to be your savior in its place. But the problem is this. You're going to choose something that's less than God, less than your creator, and it'll be something that can't redeem you, can't save you, can't satisfy you, and won't give you eternal life. Okay? Let's go ahead and break this down. If your savior is your job, what happens when you lose your job? Or what happens worse yet when you get fired from your job because you're not good at it? If a full bank account is your savior, then what happens when you lose that money or a recession happens or we get taken over by another nation and they don't care that you have a full bank account? Uh, what, parents, what about your children? Are your children your savior? I read a book uh, over summertime called Running on Empty by Jonas Webb. She's a psychologist, and, and in her psychology practice, she would go ahead and say this. She saw it over and over again where parents would go ahead and make their children their savior, which means this. It meant that when their kids would succeed, that was the righteousness. That was their success. And when their kids failed, it was their ruin, and they would blow up on their kids, Right? This is what happens when your children become your savior. I'm not saying don't have standards for them, but don't let it be the thing that dictates your righteousness or you being in ruin and despair. Spouses, those of you in relationships, is your significant other your savior? If so, you will suffocate them. You'll suffocate them. And probably they already feel this as well, but they haven't said anything yet. They'll feel suffocated. The reason is because you're going to put such high standards on them that they'll never meet and they will fail. And when they do fail, they're going to go from a place of Savior to Satan really quick in your relationship. All right, I think we offended everybody. <laughs> Last one, actually. Perhaps you're your own Savior, okay? Perhaps you're coming into church this morning and you're saying this, I can do this, I don't need any help, it's all on me, I'm the one who's responsible for my life and my salvation. If that's you, I want to challenge you with this. Corey Ten Boom, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. She was a, a Dutch woman who ended up getting uh, arrested uh, for hiding Jews, went to a concentration camp. And she has a story when she's in one of these concentration camps um, where one day, out of the blue, uh, they had a couple blankets, and it was a cold, drafty winter day. Uh, but one day, the, the uh, guards came in and gave them all new blankets for free, no strings attached. How great is that, right? Shortly after, a large group of Czechoslovakians showed up, and when they entered, they weren't given any blankets, right? So kind of those mind games you see that the Nazis would play. So here they have extra blankets that have been there for a while, and then this new group shows up to a drafty, cold winter day, 
and I don't have any blankets. Here's what um, Corey Tenbu says about her interaction with one of those girls who showed up on the screen. So that evening, I, quote, lent her a blanket, but I didn't, quote, give it to her. In my heart, I held on that to the right to that blanket. Was it a coincidence that joy and power imperceptibly drained from my ministry? My prayers took on a mechanical ring. Even Bible reading was dull and lifeless. And so I struggled on with worship and teaching that had ceased to be real. One night I was reading from the Apostle Paul when the truth blazed like sunlight in the shadows of Barracks 28. The real sin I had been committing was not that of inching towards the center of a platoon because I was cold. The real sin lay in thinking that any power to help and transform came from me. Of course, it was not my wholeness, but Christ's wholeness that made the difference. This is phenomenal, church, and I hope you're catching what she's saying. She said, for a moment of jealousy, Christ ceased to be my savior, and I became my own savior by, by just lending the blanket for someone else. Uh, lending a blanket, by the way, that she had received freely and she couldn't give away freely. And the result was this. She says, joy left me. Joy left me. Praying was mechanical. Bible reading, lifeless. It wasn't until she repented of misplacing her hope for a savior that joy came back to her. And so once again, Mercy Fellowship, is God your savior? If God's not your savior, what else are you looking towards to be your savior? Augustine, he's a church father from uh, Ethiopia, and he says this. He says, God is always trying to give good things to us, but our hands are too full to receive them. Here's what I would recommend to you, church. Do you want joy this season? Give up your fake idols. Give up your fake saviors. Look to him. And when you do, you're going to see his hands are full of gifts for you, and he's inviting you into an eternal kingdom where you can have everlasting joy because of Jesus. So how do we receive this eternal kingdom, right? Now, you got to think about it like this. God's kingdom is no different than any other kingdom. God's kingdom has a door, okay? So, so how do I get in? How do I enter through that door? And Mary will say here, those who enter into the kingdom are those who are humble. That's what she'll say. Let's go ahead and take a look at it again, verse 48. She says this, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Right? That word humble, it translates to lowly as well. And it means this. It means that you recognize in your relationship with God that, that you're not bringing anything into it. That's what it means. It means that God's not impressed with your accolades and your trophies like you and I are. I want you to think about it like this. God's not a talent scout. Hey, he's not looking for the best, the brightest, the, the most accomplished, the, the biggest bank accounts. Rather, God is a father who is looking for the weak and lost of the world. He is looking for those who are humble. So how do we enter through this door of humility? We enter by acknowledging this. I have no merits on my own to reconcile me to God or to make me a person that God would find favor in. My only hope to enter is by God's mercy. Uh, the brother of Jesus, a half-brother, his name is James, and he wrote in his uh, letter, he says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
It's a way of saying this. If you come to God with pride, if you come to God with like, hey, I'm in charge, he's going to oppose you. You can't enter. But, but God will, in fact, give grace to those who are humble. To them, they can enter. But we need to wrestle with this verse, though, okay? Verse 48 is really interesting. Mary starts off part one of the verse with saying, I'm humble, okay? And then she goes on later to say this, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Have you heard anyone say that before? And are they humble when they say that? Like if I was to be serious from the stage here and say, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, I think Pastor Chris would fire me. I think he would, right? And probably rightfully so. That sounds very arrogant. That sounds very prideful. What's Mary saying here? There's two things I want us to catch on this. One, Mary is the only person in all of human history that has ever existed in the past and will ever exist in the future that gave birth to God. She's the only one, okay? She's the one who would go through labor and give birth. She's the one who was responsible for cradling and taking care of baby Jesus. It even talks about in Luke's gospel how Jesus grew in knowledge and wisdom. Mary might have been even responsible for part of that as well. Mary plays and it's such an amazing role in Jesus' life. In fact, if you want to think about this, I just thinking about it this week, I thought it was so interesting. Jesus most likely would have facial characteristics that match that of Mary. How amazing is that? What a, what a blessing that is for Mary. What a gift that is for her God uh, to resemble her, right? So yes, church, she is blessed. She is wholly unique throughout all of history. Other churches that are more liturgical as opposed to ours, when they refer to Mary, they'll call her the, the blessed Virgin Mary. She is blessed. Secondly, though, what's most important about this, she does say all generations will call her blessed. But why will they call her blessed, though, church? Who's the hero of her story? Once again, if we look at those verses, verse 48 says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Verse 50, For his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Who's the hero of her story? God is. God is the hero of Mary's story. She's recognizing this, someone who's poor and marginalized. Any success that she might have, its origin starts with God. Mary, she becomes an example for us, church, of what humility is. She becomes an example for us of how we enter into the kingdom, how we enter into God's presence. The humble person will recognize that all of the success in their life comes from God. Because if we forget that all of our success comes from God and we start to be filled up and swelled up with pride, it's going to consume us. I, I think about our church and, and just how great of a season we've had over this last year. This last year, we've baptized more people than we have in, in the last seven years almost. Praise God for that. They've made public professions that they belong to Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Praise God for that, right? That's great. Our church, as opposed to this time last year, we've grown almost 40%. That's ridiculous. Once again, praise God for that. Uh, we've sold property. Buildings being remodeled. Things are coming together. It seems like things are looking good. And we can go ahead and get into this cycle, if you will, of saying we're making plans, we're doing good, we're planning for the future. And as we're talking about the successes or the success we hope to have, we forget God in the back somewhere. 
And so we need to be incredibly uh, careful when it comes to who we are, uh, that we are humble people. And John the Baptist, he serves for us as a good example of this. He'll say in John chapter 3, verse 27, he'll say, there is not one thing that a person can have that can be given to them apart from heaven, right? There's not one thing of your success, of your life, that has not been given to you except through heaven first. And then John, a few verses later, in John chapter 3, verse 30, he'll say this, He must increase, and I must decrease. Church, that's the test right there of what humility is, right? That's the truest test of humility. Uh, when you have success, does God's name get bigger or does yours? When you have success, do you point to God who granted you your success? Do you acknowledge him in prayer, thanking him for what he's done for you? Right? Those of you that are talented in this room, right? you've got some gifts, you've got some things that you're really good at, do you acknowledge the gift giver of your gifts? God is a savior of the humble. He's a savior of the humble. And this is how God proves that he's a savior of the humble. God went ahead and he came to Mary and decided to be born in poverty and lowliness. Uh, did you think about that for a second? Like, if you were to have a do-over on who your parents were, right, and, and you don't, and if you had a, were able to have a do-over on where you lived, you would probably choose things different, wouldn't you? Some of you, you'd probably choose two parents, a mom and a dad. Some of you, you'd probably choose a less depressing state with better weather, right? <laughs> Some of you, you might go ahead and choose royalty. you choose money. you choose fame. you choose a, a successful family business. He might choose all of these different things, and God could have chosen any of those things, but he didn't. He chose poverty and weakness to enter into. Jesus decided to identify with the weak and low of the world upon his entry. And it's because of this that the humble, the lowly, Mary herself, have reason to rejoice. Although the nations reject people like that, God doesn't. God hasn't forgotten them. Martin Luther, he has this quote. He says this, God is a God of the humble, the miserable, the afflicted, the oppressed, the desperate, and those who have been brought to nothing. So this morning, church, if this is you today, miserable, afflicted, oppressed, lost, the good news is that God is not waiting for you to get your act together, but rather he has come down in Jesus to bring you everlasting joy. And so we've talked about this kingdom, right? This kingdom, this good news of a kingdom that has come to Mary and has come to those who are humble. There's a door to that kingdom as well. Whoever would enter through that door, um, they have to be humble. They can't be prideful. Another question for us to ask about this kingdom is this, though. What's the kingdom like? What's the economy of this kingdom? What are we being invited to by the arrival of Jesus? Is it different than other nations? We'll go ahead and take a look at those verses, verses 51 through 55. It says this, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, 
and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God's strength is made known. And it has this weird phrase talking about the strength of his right arm. And what's that talking about? It's talking about God's power. But we have to think about this. God is not like other rulers. God's kingdom is not like other kingdoms. God's kingdom is an upside-down economy from that of the world. Jesus would say this throughout his ministry. He would say things along the lines of, hey, if, if you want to be great, then you need to serve and you need to be the least. Do you want to live? Well, then you need to die. The last will be first, and the first will be last. So the economy of God's kingdom, church, it's upside down. This is where the proud, they're brought low, and the low are exalted onto thrones. And, and it says this, it says, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their own heart. It's, it's an interesting phrase because it's talking about how, how God's just giving them what they want. Like they're so impressed with themselves. They're so in love and infatuated with themselves. You can just be lost in the, scat in the thoughts of your own heart. It makes me think of the, the Greek mythology story of Narcissus. Uh, just to cut that story short, Narcissus um, is a beautiful uh, young man. And one day he's walking through the forest and he sees his own reflection in a, a body of water. And he's so amazed at how beautiful he is that he gets down on his hands and knees and he stares at his own reflection and he forgets to eat, he forgets to drink, he forgets to sleep. Days go by and he dies. The end. Right? That's how they wrote stories back in Greek mythology. I, I don't know what to tell you, okay? No happy ending. But that's the idea, right? That kind of plays with the idea of pride, that, that pride is, is self-consuming. It's looking inward. It is devouring. And you have a real-world example of this in these stories and throughout history. You look at prideful kings, prideful nations, and their MO is this. Hey, why don't you go ahead and die for me? Why don't you go ahead and shed your blood so that my kingdom, my name, can get better, get bigger, get greater? And whether it was Egypt, whether it was Persia, whether it was Greek, whether it was Rome, or whether one day, church, it might even be America, they will all come and go. And God's economy is upside down in this way. When our God shows up, he's not a prideful king. He's a humble king. And he shows up, and, and his kingdom advances, not because you're shedding his, your blood for him, but because he's shedding his blood for you. And he's inviting the lowly, the weak, the depressed, the marginalized, the not-so-great, not-so-talented people of the world to come and be a part of his kingdom. He has strength in his arm. He overtakes the nations. He fills the hungry. He's not impressed with the rich. They can't buy their way in. And he cares for the humble and lowly. And so you might hear all this that we're talking about today. And you might find in yourself some pride, perhaps. You might think about your life. You might even push back a little bit on a few things that I've said. And you might find in yourself, yeah, there, there's, there's an angst there. There's some pride that I have in my life. And I'm looking at God's kingdom, not from the inside of it where I'm hanging out with Jesus as our king, but I'm looking at it from the outside, um, outside looking in, rather. How do I become a part of God's kingdom? How do I receive this kingdom? Is there hope for me? There is. There is hope for you. 
And it's this idea of God's covenant that he made with Abraham and his offspring. Right? That's what the last few verses say. It says, verse 54, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Why are we bringing up an old guy like Abraham? Well, here's why. Acts chapter 3, verse 25, it's a, it's a promise, a covenant that God made with his people. And God spoke to Abraham and he says this, Through your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And Mary is saying here this, do you want to be a part of God's kingdom? If so, be humble. And when you are, God will look down upon you. And he's going to look down upon you and he's going to remember your sins? No. No, your pride? No. He's going to remember your rebellion, your failing? No. God is going to look down upon you and he's going to remember his mercy. God will look down upon us and remember his mercy. Mercy Fellowship, there's mercy for today. I'm going to see how many times I can say mercy in one sentence. There's mercy for you today. Repent of your pride. Repent of your false saviors. Trust in Jesus. Be baptized, pledging your public allegiance to Jesus. And then join the mission of being a part of God's kingdom, the church, that has been advancing and growing for 2,000 years. Because of anything we've done? No. Because of who our Savior is. Our Savior is one who pursues us. He cares for the lowly and the marginalized. And we rejoice in that. Two things I want to conclude with, church, before we go. One is this. Followers of Jesus that are here in this room uh, and being part of his kingdom, we have the privilege of becoming ambassadors of God's kingdom. Wherever we might go, in our workplaces, at home, with our friends out for coffee, wherever it might be, we are going out as ambassadors and proclaimers of this kingdom that we are a part of that has no end. This becomes so helpful for us, church, when we think about the current place of our world. When you look at the news and you see nations, do you think, man, they're really stable. Man, they're doing really good. By and large, I would say no. It seems like the nations are shaking. It seems like the foundations are cracking. And what a privilege we have, church, for us to go ahead and say, hey, hey, let me tell you about a kingdom that is from heaven. Let me tell you about a kingdom whose king is our King Jesus. Let me tell you about a kingdom, as the writer of Hebrews says, uh, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So you want some security in your life? Look to Jesus. That's what I would say. Second point is this, and we'll close with this. You might find yourself in a place like Mary. You might find yourself in a place where you feel depressed and alone, uncertain about where the future is going, just kind of wondering, man, does God see my life? Does God know what I'm going through? Does God see the suffering and the pain and the heartache of which I face? To give language to perhaps your experience, Psalm 77 says this, I am too distressed to even pray. I think of the good old days, long since ended, when my nights were filled with joyful songs. I search my soul and I ponder the difference now. Has the Lord rejected me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Is his unfailing love gone forever? Have his promises permanently failed? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he slammed the door on his compassion? 
The answer, church, is emphatically no. Emphatically no. The story we get from Mary is this, that God sees you, and he sees you in his mercy, and he invites those of you here today who are weary, who are heavy laden, who are broken to come to him and receive joy because the hope we have is this. God is creating a new heavens and a new earth where prideful nations, they crumble to the dust, but there's an everlasting kingdom with our King Jesus that will reign forever. His arrival, church, means this. You're invited. Let's pray.